Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join Pastor Neil Effa as he preaches from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 in the fourth part of a sermon series called Character Under Construction, with this message from June 16th titled Under Control or Out of Control. I want to begin at verse five. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, They keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You and I know that we begin the Christian life in faith by accepting Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. But the Christian life involves so much more than this initial step of faith. And so it's for this reason that Peter tells us that we are to supplement or we are to add to our faith seven qualities. And growing in Christ requires all of these characteristics. In the Greek, the word supplement or add, as used in verse 5, is where we get the English word choreograph. This word was a musical term which meant to lead a choir or to support a chorus or to keep in tune. When a conductor leads a choir, he or she has to make sure that the voices of the men blend with the voices of the women that they blend in perfect harmony. And when the choir is carefully choreographed, the end result is a wonderful piece of music that uplifts the soul. And so in our spiritual growth, these qualities that that Peter lists are all necessary. They must all work together in perfect harmony in order for our lives to display the transforming work of Jesus Christ. And so it's for that reason, Peter says, add to your faith or supplement to your faith, these qualities. Peter began his epistle by giving us a necessary foundation for spiritual formation. First, he says that God has given us all the help we need to live the godly life. Therefore, you and I have no excuse for not growing in Christ likeness. All the conditions, all the requirements, all the resources for our spiritual growth are at our disposal. And second, Peter says that we then must make every effort to be godly. In other words, spiritual formation does not take place automatically. Yes, God does his part in imparting to us his righteousness. God does impart in giving to us the resources and the power necessary to grow in in Christ-likeness. But we must do our part as well. We must cooperate with the Holy Spirit if we're going to experience this transformation, this change in our character. So in light of that, we began to examine the seven qualities Peter listed. The first of the list is virtue. And we determined from scripture that that a virtuous person will be courageous to do the right thing, regardless of the temptation to sin and the pressure to conform to this world. We looked at the life of Daniel and how he did not uh, allow the world to, to uh, pressure him and to con- he did not conform to the world. He was courageous to do the right thing. And then Peter listed the characteristic of knowledge. And again, from scripture, we determined that the kind of knowledge we need to grow in Christ likeness is a knowledge of Christ himself. 
We need to grow in our knowledge about Christ and in our knowledge of Christ. And this knowledge focuses not only on information, but rather on relationship. And we looked at the life of the apostle Paul, where he said that he wanted to know Christ, to know him more intimately and more deeply. And this leads us now to the third quality that Peter identifies, and that is self-control. A number of years ago, Flight Time magazine carried an article by Garson Kanan, where he wrote, at age 65, I am in far better shape than I was at 25. At the age I was, at that age, I was a mass of bad habits. I smoked foolishly, drank to excess, slept little, popped sleeping pills. Looking back on all this, I suppose that what has taken place principally is a shift in emphasis from the instinctive physical drives to the mental ones. When I was young, my body controlled my mind in a runaway fashion. It has taken 40 years of experience, sometimes painful, often dismaying, to put my mind in charge of the rest of me. He then continued, It is not easy to learn about the tyranny of what feels good. Slouching in a soft armchair, beer in hand, watching a baseball game for two hours is pleasant. It feels good, but there are other things that feel good too. The discipline of work, the joy of creating, and the ecstasy of learning, always learning, continually learning. Does anything in that article describe your life or resonate with you? Is your body controlled by your mind in a runaway fashion? Are you living by instinctive physical drives? Or have you given in to the tyranny of what feels good? What in your life has gone out of control? Is it the outwardly apparent overeating, overspending, overtalking? Is it the inwardly corrosive anger? Pride, lust, selfishness, unkindness, or greed. What we need to develop is a godly virtue of self-control. And self-control frees us to pursue the abundant life that God promises. Before we go any further, we need to understand what Peter means when he uses this term self-control. But doesn't the word seem to be self-defining? I mean, after all, doesn't it suggest that all we need to do is just to control ourselves? Well, Webster's Dictionary defines self-control as restraint exercised over one's impulses, emotions, and desires. And the Greek word for self-control means temperance, the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions, especially his sensual appetites. It is a rejection of temptation and the refusal to give indwelling sin the upper hand in our life. Chuck Swindoll describes self-control in this way. He says, self-control is a spirit-empowered restraint to say no to sin, especially concerning my thoughts, my words, and moral behavior, and yes, to what is right, because I want to express my love to God. And David Jeremiah says, this is his favorite description of the word. He writes, self-control is the ability to maintain progress toward a goal, even when you're not in the mood, when you don't feel like making the effort, and when you would momentarily enjoy, enjoy doing something else, or find working towards your goal downright unpleasant. In other words, self-discipline is about governing yourself. And contrary to the opinion of many, this is not a limiting life. This is a life that totally frees you up to be the person God created you to be. What is a goal in our Christian life? 
We said it is to become like Jesus, to be transformed in our character and in our nature. And David Jeremiah says that self-control is the ability to maintain progress toward that goal of becoming like Christ, even when the circumstances are such that you do not want to. But in light of that, we need to ask ourselves, why is self-control so important? Why is it necessary? The book of Proverbs illustrates the importance of self-control. In Proverbs 25, verse 28, we read like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. In Bible times, a wall around a city was its main defense. Without such a defense, there, were, there was no safety. And if a wall existed but was breached, an enemy could enter into the city and destroy homes, plunder possessions, and make captives of the residents. In the same way that a wall offers physical protection and safety, self-control is a wall which defends us spiritually against sinful temptations. Self-control helps us to govern our desires, stay within appropriate bounds, and avoid excesses. The Bible tells us very honestly that as Christians, we have a struggle going on within us. Here are the words of Paul to the Galatian church. He said for the flesh, that's the old nature, less against the spirit, which is a new nature and the spirit against the flesh. And these two natures are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. In other words, we live in a conflicted state even as believers picture a tug of war competition and contest two sides struggling against each other, straining to gain control. Can both sides win? Of course not. That's not the nature of the game. And if we don't understand that we will never be able to have any kind of self-control in our lives, we will be victimized all the time. I think this poem expresses the struggle of, of our inner life. Two natures beat within my breast. The one is foul. The one is blessed. The one I love, the one I hate, but the one I feed will dominate. This reality led one theologian to talk about the importance of self-control in this way. He says, self-control is simply that important, impressive, and nearly impossible practice of learning to maintain control of the beast of one's own sinful passions. We have an example in scripture of a man who did not learn to control the beast of his sinful passions. He provides an example and a warning as to what happens when we live an undisciplined and out of control, uncontrolled life. You have probably at least heard of Samson, even if only from a children's version of the story of Samson and Delilah. You have heard of his supernatural brawn and how his long hair was cut. And when it was cut, he lost his power. Although Samson's accomplishments are legendary, he's notorious for his weaknesses, for his lack of self-control. Even with tremendous God-given potential, again and again, he made bad decisions, ultimately sabotaging the life that he could have had. God had given Samson unique abilities he could have used to advance God's purposes. But because of his vanity, his selfishness, his, his lust, his short-sightedness, and ultimately lack of control, 
He squandered them. Samson's life could be summed up in one statement. Samson was an incredibly strong man with a weak will. His story begins in Judges chapter 13. Because the Israelites had been unfaithful to God, God let them fall under the rule of their enemies, the Philistines. But after the Israelites had served the Philistine, had been subject to the Philistines for 40 years, God was about to raise up someone who would deliver them from their bondage. So God sent an angel to a couple who hadn't been able to have any children. And the angel told the woman that she was going to have a son. The parents couldn't know it yet, but from the beginning of their son's life, the spirit of the Lord would stir within him and God would give him supernatural strength. The angel didn't tell them that, but he did tell them something else pretty unusual. He told Samson's mother, she should never let her son's hair be cut because God wanted him to be a Nazarite. In other words, he was to be dedicated to God from the womb as a Nazarite, he, was, he would be required to abstain from all alcohol derived from grapes, refrain from cutting the hair on his head, and he was not to become ritually impure by contact with corpses or graves, even those of his family members. As we trace his story, we'll see how Samson violated his Nazarite vow. I don't have time to read the story in its entirety. And so I'm just going to give you an overview of Samson's life and his uncontrolled lifestyle. It begins in Judges chapter 14. In that chapter, we read that Samson went down to Timnah and he saw a young Philistine woman. When he returned to his father and mother, he insisted that they go and bring her back so that he could take her as his wife. And you may be wondering, what's the big deal? He wanted that woman for his wife. Well, Timnah was an enemy territory. Samson had abandoned his friends to visit his enemies where he found a forbidden woman. Prior to this, God had told his people that they were forbidden to marry, intermarry with people who did not worship him. So Samson went looking for trouble. There was no effort to bring his lust under control. And as soon as he saw this woman, he forgot everything else. His actions loudly proclaimed, I don't care what God says. I don't care what mom and dad say. I don't care what's right or what's wrong. I've got desires. I've got needs and I want it. Lust made Samson weak. Later in Judges, we read that Samson went down to Timnah with his parents. And as they approached the vineyards of Timnah, a lion suddenly came roaring toward him. The Bible says that the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. So he tore the lion apart with his bare hands. Then later on another trip to Timnah, Samson turned aside from the road to look for that lion that he had killed. And he came upon the lion's carcass and in it, he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands and he ate it as he went along. And again, you may be wondering, well, what was wrong with that? Remember as a Nazarite, he was not to touch anything dead. But Samson didn't just touch the dead lion. He went looking for it. And then he plunged his hand inside, grabbed a handful of honey and ate it. The senseless selfish act once again revealed Samson's lack of self-control. But there's more to Samson's story. In Judges 14.10, we read that Samson went down to see the woman. And there he held a feast as was customary for young men. The word feast includes more than what comes to your mind and my mind. This wasn't a tea party with crumpets. 
The Hebrew word means feast, drink, banquet. It means party. By definition, it's a drinking party. It's partying hearty. Samson put on a big party where there was plenty of alcohol and he called in his buddies and they got hammered. And once again, he violated his Nazarite vow. He was to abstain from alcohol derived from grapes, but his weak will became evident. He wanted it. He felt he deserved it and believed that he could handle it. Oh, if that were only the end of Samson's story, but there's more. Later in Judges, we read that he taunted the Philistines with a riddle. When they couldn't figure out the riddle, they pressured his fiancée to get the answer from him. And when Samson refused to give the answer to his fiancée, she resorted to tears until Samson finally caved. And when he discovered that she had given the men of the town the answer to the riddle, he became furious. And soon his anger became uncontrollable. Immediately after he had lost his bet, Samson strolled into a nearby town, killed 30 men, took all their clothes, went back to the party and handed them out to pay off his gambling debt. That was what he owed these men for answering the riddle, a committed murder. So up to this point, the sequence of events took place. Samson pursued the wrong woman. He's the one who decided to marry that woman. He's the one who ignored his parents' advice and, wit- and God's wisdom. He's the one who taunted the Philistines with a riddle. He's the, one who knew who, he's the only one who knew the answer to the riddle, but he gives the answer away anyways. And he's the one who murders a bunch of guys. But there's more. Let me jump down to Judges 16, verses 1 and 2. Here we read, one day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night saying at dawn, we will kill him. Gaza, the headquarters of the Philistines. Samson heads out right into the heart of Philistine territory and into the arms of a prostitute. But instead of spending the whole night with a prostitute, he slipped out quietly under the cover of night, tore the doors off the city gates and hauled them away. And in so doing, he was once again taunting the Philistines. And Samson's story continues. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the Valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines offered Delilah cash if she would get Samson to reveal the secret of his great strength. And you know the story. Delilah asks and he lies to her. She asks again. And once again, he lies to her. She asks again, but again, he lies to her. However, this time with each lie, he's getting closer and closer and closer to telling her the truth. She asks one more time. And this time Samson tells her the truth. As he sleeps, she cuts his hair. His strength is gone and he's captured. Samson's story is a sad story. It's a story of a man's life out of control. If only he would have brought his life under God's control, God could have used him in a more powerful way to advance his purposes. But in light of Samson's story, what is it that is out of control in your life and in my life? Is it lust? We want something and we have to have it. 
Is it anger? We get frustrated and we have a short fuse. We, we get angry at others and at ourselves and, and we take it out on other people. One small thing can launch us into one big rage. Is it apathy and passive living? We're aggressive in some areas of our life, but there are some areas that we just don't care about. Is it greed? We love the things of the world and we want more and more and more and more. The list of possibilities is endless. So how does one develop self-control? How does one avoid a life that gets out of control? Well, true self-control is undoubtedly a work of God. It's also something that we need to work towards. That's why Peter tells us to make every effort to add to our faith, these characteristics, these virtues. We can be intentional about trying to grow this virtue, at least as, as we invite God to help us. So how do we do that? How do we practically work towards better self-control in a world of temptation? Very briefly, six things I offer to you this morning. First of all, be honest about your weaknesses. You can't fix something if you don't admit it's a problem. So if we're serious about developing greater self-control, we need to be totally honest with ourselves about where we lack it. Taking some time to reflect on the way we spend our time, the urges we tend to respond to, and the way we conduct ourselves enables us to build up a picture of what we might struggle with in terms of self-control. By doing so, however, we will properly define the problem. And this is a vital, important first step. Be honest about your weaknesses. Second, recognize self-control is about a partnership. It's a spiritual discipline. What the great writer Dallas Willard calls an activity in my power that enables me to accomplish what I can't do by direct effort. That means developing it as a partnership between God and us. If we attempt to practice it on our own, we are going to stumble and fall. The amount of temptation around us is overwhelming to the point where self-control becomes a superhuman feat. Fortunately, we have access to something beyond the power of humanity. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live controlled lives. And so recognizing that this just isn't about us, but it's about us cooperating with the Holy Spirit is key to our success. Third, make it a goal. Self-control, self-discipline, self-denial, they're incredibly hard work. We're much more likely to practice them successfully if we make them into a defined goal. So treat developing this virtue as you would any other major piece of personal development. You might want to write a journal, put reminders up on your fridge, tell your close friends about what you are doing, and invite them to hold you accountable. Personal focus and the encouragement of others is so vital. Then exercise your self-control muscle. Become aware of situations where the powers of self-denial are going to be called into action and to intentionally succeed in using them. Home alone with an internet connection and a serious amount of temptation to look at adult content. Work hard at not giving in and celebrate your successes when you don't. Create distractions for yourself and other interventions. Deliberately sabotage your internet connection. Go for a walk. 
The same applies if you're struggling with a tendency to gamble or to eat or to drink too much or some other way to fall to, uh, it, to fail to limit your moderate or and moderate your actions. Whatever your struggle, you'll get better at it by resisting temptation if you practice resisting temptation. Also learn and recover from your setbacks. When you can't quite resist temptation, don't give up completely. One mistake doesn't mean you're, you're back where you started, that you are unable to practice self-control. Instead, try to learn from your setback. Ask yourself, why did it happen? How might I have avoided it? Every journey of growth involves some stumbling. We're imperfect people. Failure, however, isn't a disaster, but how you respond to it can be. So don't give up. And finally, draw closer to God. Do not neglect your relationship with Jesus. One of the first things that we neglect when our life is out of control, when it begins to spin out of control, is our relationship with Jesus. Our Bible remains on the shelf. Our prayer life goes dry. We avoid Christian fellowship. We remove ourselves from Christian service. Rather than being consumed with God, we become consumed with ourselves. And so it is vital if we're going to develop self-control that we draw close to God in those times. In his turning point daily devotional for July 16, 2004, David Jeremiah shares a Paul Harvey story about how Eskimos sometimes killed wolves. A knife with a razor sharp blade was soaked in blood, then frozen. After repeating these two steps numerous times, the blade was completely concealed by frozen blood. It was stuck in the ground, blade up, waiting for a wolf to catch the scent. A wolf, unable to quench his desire for the blood, would ultimately bleed to death from wounds inflicted by licking the blade. Isn't that a perfect example of being consumed by one's own lusts and wants and desires by someone who isn't able to master his desires. It's a perfect example of a life out of control. The inability to put a stop to something destructive and ultimately fatal. On the other hand, when we exercise self-control, we pursue a holy life that is glorifying to the Lord who made us in his image, redeemed us through his gospel, and gave his indwelling spirit to live within us. Exercising self-control keeps our enemy from gaining a foothold over us. And it keeps sin from having the upper hand in our thoughts, words, and actions. If we do not discipline ourselves and rule over our own actions, we will leave ourselves vulnerable to temptation, the influence of the world, the influence of the enemy, and consequently sin. Therefore, Peter... In 2 Peter chapter 1 says, let us supplement our faith with self-control. Would you bow as I pray? Father God, I pray that we would be honest before you this morning. That we would be honest about any weakness that we may have in our life that we may be honest that there are parts of our life that are out of control. 
that there are things in our nature and characteristics that, that are unpleasing to you. Father, I pray that you would bring us to that place of honesty and then bring us to that place where we partner with you to change our attitudes, to change our character, to change our thoughts, to change our behavior. Father, I pray that we would allow you to chisel those things out of our life that are sinful and harmful and destructive and that we would allow your spirit to build into our lives those things that are uplifting and encouraging and helpful. And so, Lord, we realize that you have called us to self-denial, self-discipline, to a life of self-control. And I pray that we would add that to our faith. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash TBC Swan River. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Temple Baptist Church or search on your favorite podcast app.